so here we are. We're in our love series, and it's eight weeks on identity, sexuality, and gender. Um, and today we begin part one uh, of a mini-series within a series. So it's a two-part uh, series, Gay Marriage and the Scriptures, part one. And next week we'll look at Gay Marriage and the Scriptures, part two. So we're really kind of zoning in on, on same-sex sex as we find in the Bible. So just want to give a little warning to those uh, who are children in the room. We are going to cover some pretty heavy topics. And so that's just a little note to a parent if you're in the room. Um, this, it may not be an appropriate Sunday for them to be here today. Okay, so I've geared this eight-week series, as I've mentioned before, towards people who are interested in the biblical story. Um, we're interested in what Jesus thinks. I hope you're interested in what Jesus thinks. Our country and countries around the world are making, you know, political decisions about some of these issues. I'm not interested in that conversation. I'm interested in Jesus. I'm interested in what the king would want for his people um, and what he thinks about identity, sexuality, and gender. If we're following him, we want to know what he's calling us to, his church. And I think a great dialogue has been happening, um, especially in our life groups. We're getting feedback as a staff team about different conversations that are being had. And one of those conversations is all about language, the language we use in this series. And so there's kind of a couple different tribes of people um, here today in the room. Um, some Christians prefer using the language of same-sex attraction. Uh, this keeps us focused on identity as children of God. So we would say, listen, if... If you have a same-sex attraction, let's just keep it in the, in the realm of, of, of the words are attraction, not identity. So rather than calling myself gay, I am a Christian, a child of God, who is same-sex attracted. So that would be maybe one camp here in the church. They prefer to use that language. Um, and the concern is that if I label myself straight, like, you know, heterosexual, homosexual, gay, lesbian, whatever, then that suddenly is becoming my primary identity. But really, my primary, primary identity is being a child of God. So that's one camp. Another camp in the church says that it's okay to call myself a gay Christian um, because when we say we're gay, it's, it's, or use that language of gay Christian, we're uh, first of all being uh, respectful to those who use that language. So if somebody says, I'm gay, and I respond with, no, you're a same-sex attracted child of God. That's a little weird. That Suddenly, I'm turning into a teacher. I'm in teacher mode, right? And it's not uh, honoring the language that our friend may use. Um, but secondly, uh, to call yourself a gay Christian is a missional bridge. Um, many same-sex attracted Christians call themselves gay in order to meet the LGBTQ community where they're at. So it's saying, even though you and I make different choices in how we live our life, um, we share the same orientation, and so it's an attempt to build a bridge. <clears throat> so here's my thing. I don't want us to get hang up, hung up on this issue. Uh, some of you, like me, are purists who prefer to use uh, same-sex attraction alone, but we need to have some grace for each other here. And so you might hear speakers on this stage in the coming weeks go back and forth uh, with how uh, we use our language, and, uh, but the important thing is that we realize, and I think all of us in the room who are followers of Jesus can, can, can admit uh, that we are children of God, that that is our primary identity. First John 3, 1 again, see what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we would be called children of God, and that is what we are. So let's pray. Jesus, I thank you so much that this is, this is my true identity. I'm your child. And Heavenly Father, I just pray that in this room right now that we would picture the great loving arms of you, our Father, holding us, filling this place with your presence, with your love. God, we are so grateful for the love that you pour out upon your people. And so today as we hear some really difficult passages, God, I pray that we, would, um, that we would see these in the context of your love and that we would know that sometimes hard truth is still part of your love. And we thank you, we trust you, and we love you. Amen. Okay. Jen Hatmaker, in October 2016, she did an interview. And uh, in it, in that interview, Jen Hatmaker uh, ruffled some conservative feathers as it were. In, in, an, in an article, um, she reveals her support for same-sex marriage. 
Her husband, Brandon, uh, then released a post on Facebook explaining a little bit more about the couple's views. And some of you may know Jen Hatmaker as a popular author, um, speaker at conferences, so on and so forth. Um, and so anyway, so she and Brandon, they kind of, uh, they put together this statement. It's a little bit long, so bear with me. Brandon writes this, Jen and I are 100% on the same page regarding her recent interview about our love and hope for the LGBTQ community. This is a journey we've been on together. We both believe a same-sex marriage as a lifelong monogamous commitment can be holy before God. We started with scripture. For more than a year, we studied every version of every verse in the Bible that appeared to discuss homosexuality. We studied the Greek, we studied the Hebrew, we read every commentary we could find related specifically to the related passages. As we would for any topic seeking truth, we did our best to look at each verse with fresh eyes. We applied all the rules to faithfully and ethically interpret scripture. We considered the type of literature, the context in which it, each was written, what other scriptures say about it, giving clues to God's intent and viewed each through the lens of the gospel. What we found is that it's not as simple as traditionally taught. Bottom line, we don't believe a committed, lifelong, monogamous, same-sex marriage violates anything seen in scripture about God's hopes for the marriage relationship. So here, you have a high-profile Christian leader changing her mind after reading the Bible, which is interesting, because that's what we're gonna do today. We're gonna read the Bible. And I want you to know, I am not picking a fight with Jen Hatmaker here at all. Uh, my wife, Tanya, has appreciated a couple of her books in the past, and I just wanna highlight this story because I think that this is the story of many followers of Jesus in recent years. Many are rereading scripture in a certain way, and they've changed their minds. Now, what the biblical writers say in the pages of scripture is massively important. Remember, we don't follow Jesus based on emotions alone. We, we don't change the teachings of Jesus just because it's quote-unquote 2020 or because our logic seems better or because our emotions run strong. No. As Leslie Newbegin says again, if the biblical story does not control our thinking, then we'll be swept into the story that the world tells about itself. So our question today is this. Do the scriptures condone same-sex marriage? Would God ever condone a loving, monogamous, covenantal, same-sex marriage? The hat makers think so. Are they right? Well, let's roll up our sleeves and dive in. And as we do, remember, I prayed this kind of posture of the Father, but could you just picture, as we work through these scriptures, the, the beautiful posture of the Father for you? Posture of love, his arms are just like holding you. He's not here to break a bruised reed. He's... He's here to love us. And if you can picture any father with their child, sometimes the father says yes. Sometimes the father says no. It's all love. It's all love, right? God's yes and his no. Let's not pit those against each other as though one is loving and one isn't, right? His yes and no, no matter what it is in our life, is always a posture of love as he holds us. Okay, so let's dive in. So first of all, I want to make a point about the scriptures. And I get this idea from Preston Sprinkle. Upon an initial plain reading of the Bible, like if you were just to kind of flip open a Bible and start reading the, depending on who you are, five to seven uh, passages about homosexuality in the Bible, upon an initial plain reading of the Bible, same-sex sex is always written in the negative. It, it's always prohibited. But you know what? That's not the case with other hot topic issues in the church. Think about it. There, other hot topic issues have conflicting passages. So if you wanted to know what God believes about divorce, I believe we can get to an answer. But upon a plain reading of scripture, you can read Malachi chapter 2, and you can read God hates divorce, and then you can read Jesus and Paul permissioning divorce in some cases in the New Testament. And you're like, well, which is it? You know, Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. So he allows divorce, but yet in Malachi 2, he hates divorce. How do these work together? Um, what about a hot topic issue like women teaching in the church? That's been a big deal. And so 1 Timothy 2, Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach. And 1 Corinthians 11, 
women are prophesying in the church. So you're like, how do you take 1 Timothy 2 and 1 Corinthians 11? How do you work those out? Um, just so you know, lots of Christians, right now, you're probably like, well, I know how to work that out. I'm sure you do. But what I'm saying is, <laughs> what I'm saying is, it's just like when you, it's just an initial plain reading of the Bible. If somebody was brand new, right, to the Bible, and they're like, oh, those don't seem to, to, to make sense. If slavery, right? What about slavery? We read about slaves obeying their masters, and it's like, slave, obey your master? That's rude. What, what about slave, rebel against your master, you know, break your chains, run away? But then we also in the Bible read about the Exodus. God gets his people out of slavery. Or we read a book of like Philemon in the New Testament where like God doesn't like slavery. So which is it? Um, does, is he okay with slavery or is he not? Or simply something like this. Like if I were to ask you, based on the Bible, based on your plain reading of the Bible, should you love your enemy? You might have a different answer whether you're reading the book of Joshua or the Sermon on the Mount. You know what I mean? So I guess what I'm trying to say is, here's the point, is that when there's a contentious issue in the church, often there are complicated passages that you have to really kind of get down into and try to understand. The interesting thing is that when it comes to same-sex sex, if you were to just open up the Bible to those five to seven passages, they're always written in the negative. They're always prohibited. So... Let's take a careful look. Let's actually dive in um, and not just look at a plain reading, but let's go really deep into some of these. So let's begin with Leviticus 18 and 20. Leviticus 18, 22. Do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. That is detestable. Leviticus 20, 13. If a man has sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. They're to be put to death. Their blood will be on their own heads. <clears throat> okay. Uh, here, same-sex sex is listed in a series of offenses along with adultery, incest, and bestiality. Which, by the way, is just a little interesting side note, is that... Uh, when we read those chapters in Leviticus, I think you and I are in agreement um, about adultery, incest, and bestiality. But we have a problem when it comes with same-sex sex here. Actor Sir Ian McKellen, who plays Gandalf in The Lord of the Rings, he confesses this. Whenever I stay at a hotel, I always check to see if they have a Gideon Bible. And if they do, I tear out a page. I turn to Leviticus 18.22 and rip out that page, which is directed against homosexuals. I think by now I must have ripped out a few hundred. Interesting. And many Christians feel like doing the same. It's like, God, why, why are these passages in the Bible? And some Christians will ask, actually many of us ask the question, aren't there many teachings in God's law, in the Torah, that we no longer follow? We ask, you know, aren't we being hypocritical to follow some laws and not others? For instance, Leviticus 19, don't wear clothes that are a mixture of wool and cotton. I didn't think about it today. I might be breaking the law like in front of your very eyes here today. Leviticus 15, don't sit where a menstruating woman has sat down. I'm going to move on and not comment on that. <laughs> Exodus 23, don't boil a baby goat in its mother's milk. I don't know if I've done that. Leviticus 11, don't eat an owl, right? And so the list goes, you know, stuff like that. Don't eat an owl. All right. Understanding how to interpret the law or the Torah is complex, but I think it's doable. It's doable. So the law can be grouped into three categories. Let's dive in deep here. So there's the moral law, the ceremonial law, and the civil law. Moral, ceremonial, and civil. So really quick, moral laws are laws that are fundamental to human flourishing. So it's like, man, this is God's heartbeat for the world. This is God's heartbeat for all creation. Um, you could argue that God's moral laws are timeless. But let's talk about ceremonial laws. Ceremonial laws are laws that refer or have to do with the tabernacle and the temple in Israel. And they dealt with how clean you had to be to enter into worship. So, for instance, Leviticus 16, 3. This is how Aaron is to enter the most holy place. He must first bring a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. 
So it's describing, okay, this is how you deal with the temple. This is how you deal with the tabernacle. Or look at civil laws, civil laws. So these are laws that helped Israel understand how to be a nation because Israel had land and it had a government and it had to figure out how to handle crime in Israel and so on and so forth. So there were a bunch of laws that were civil laws. So for instance, Leviticus 25, 25. If one of your fellow Israelites becomes poor and sells some of their property, their nearest relative is to come and redeem what they've sold. So this is a whole kind of explanation on what to do with your property. So here's the thing. Jesus is actually the fulfillment of all three of these laws. Remember, Jesus says, I've not come to abolish the law. I'm not coming to like rip these pages out of the Old Testament, but I've come to fulfill the law. So Jesus comes and he is the fulfillment of the moral, the ceremonial, and the civil laws. But this actually ends up looking a little bit different for for these categories. So picture this. In Jesus, the ceremonial laws are no longer binding for us, for us as his followers. Why? Well, think about it. Jesus is our great high priest. His own body is the temple. He is the lamb that was slain for the sin of the world, and his blood is what cleanses and purifies us from sin. Do we, as followers of Jesus, need the tabernacle or the temple or those those sacrificial systems any longer? No, because we have the great high priest, the lamb, the temple. Does that make sense? So ceremonial laws are no longer binding. It doesn't mean that they're wrong or bad, but because of Jesus, they've been fulfilled. They're like signposts pointing ahead to what Jesus would one day do. In the same way, civil laws are no longer binding for us as followers of Jesus because we're no longer in a theocracy that has a land and a government, uh, you know, criminal code, as it were, for Israel. Uh, God's people are not an earthly government, New Testament followers of Jesus, it's not about land anymore. What is it about? It's about the kingdom of God. We have a king, Jesus, and we've been welcomed into his kingdom. And so civil laws are no longer binding. So moral laws, though, are a little bit different. Moral laws are still God's heart. And all the moral laws are fulfilled in Jesus, but actually we find that in Jesus, it's like Jesus actually raises the bar for moral laws. Jesus fulfills them, but he like raises them. Moral laws continue because they're the heartbeat of what it means to be human. Moral laws keep going because they're the heartbeat that God has for his creation. And when we look in the Sermon on the Mount, it's like, whoa, the moral law actually got even tougher. So here's our question. Are the moral laws found in Leviticus 18 and 20 picked up in the New Testament? If so, if they are, that's a really big deal because it would indicate that God's moral vision for sex and marriage is timeless. Now, the answer is yes. Yes, we see Leviticus picked up in the New Testament. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Timothy 1, uses Leviticus 20 to argue that same-sex sex is not God's heart for his people. So, Let's, let's get into this for a second. Paul uses a Greek word. The Greek word is arsenokoitai, which comes from the Septuagint. If you're new to Christianity, new to Jesus, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, the, of, of the Hebrew Bible. And so the Septuagint uh, was what Jesus read, it's what Paul read, it's what all of his contemporaries read, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And in the Septuagint, arsenokoitai, It's translated lying with a male, and you you see it in Leviticus 20, verse 13, and I want to show it to you on the screen. You'll see I've highlighted two two words there, arsenos koitain, arsenos koitain. And what Paul does is he takes these two words, arsen, which means male, and koite, which is like bed or lying down, and he puts them together and he forms a new compound word. So it's arsenokoites. And he actually attaches, side note, he actually attaches a different Greek word, malakoi, which means an effeminate male, an effeminate male, and he hooks them all together. So malakoi and arsenokoites, and it means men who have sex with men, or men who lie with men. We 
Do we see this uh, in, in, in the New Testament? Yes, in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul writes this. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, there it is, arsenal koitai, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. I'm gonna finish that verse a little later on because um, it ends in a beautiful way, but just gonna pause right there. This is heavy, and as you work through that list, there can be the feeling of condemnation, right? Real condemnation. And I want, you to, I want us to see that we're all on that list. Let's say you start working through some of those things, and you're like, well, don't struggle with that, don't struggle with that, don't struggle with that. I need to show you this. The greedy is on that list. So I'd like to just say, we're all on the list, right? Can I get an amen? Amen. Amen. Okay, fine. I'm, I'm greedy, right? I want a backyard. We all want a backyard, right? Okay. Some of you have a backyard? Enjoy it. Some of us in younger generations will never know that reality. Um, but the greedy are on there, right? Like, so let's, like, let's not pick on... Uh, you know, men who have sex with men, right? Like, let's notice, Paul is describing a broken world. So this is heavy. Now, I want to say this, a couple things. Paul is not thinking of people who have same-sex attraction alone, right? Paul's referring to people who are engaged in same-sex sex. In Paul's mind, hey, you might be a straight male who has same-sex sex. It's all wrong in God's eyes. So what are we saying? Paul, an apostle of Jesus, of over a thousand years later, is writing to the church using language that reaffirm, reaffirms God's moral heart, his moral law, um, prohibiting same-sex sex in Leviticus. My point is, this is not just an Old Testament teaching. Leviticus and 1 Corinthians 6 are linked, Old, New Testament. Okay, let's look at Romans chapter 1. You can turn there if you would like. Let's work through this second big New Testament uh, passage on same-sex sex. And let's go back to Genesis for, for a quick moment. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 2. When God creates Eve, when God creates Eve, we read this. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. So man, the Hebrew for man is Ish, turn to your neighbor and say, ish, ish. Man, ish, will leave his father and mother to be united to his wife, isha, isha. Isn't that prettier, ladies? Isha, that's beautiful. Turn to your neighbor and say, isha. Ish and isha, the two come together to become one flesh. Man and woman are each other's sexual counterparts, ish and isha. Complementary sexes given to one another to become one flesh. Now, I want you to listen to Romans 1 because Paul's going to describe creation, this idea, ish and isha, together to become one, broken. He's going to describe a broken creation. I just want to let you know this is a difficult passage to read in 2020, but let's read it here. So we'll start in verse 21 and I'll read to verse 27. For although they knew God... They neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over to, in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised, amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. It's a heavy passage, but Paul is describing 
Wait, pause. Just remember the arms of the Father, right? When you read a passage like this, just remember the loving arms of the Father. He loves you deeply. What's Paul saying? He's saying there's a brokenness in creation. Do you see it? Not worshiping God, like putting God in his rightful place, has led to this brokenness in creation. And for Paul, same-sex sex is the primary example of a disordered creation. It's not to say that same-sex sex is more sinful than any other uh, act, but he's saying same-sex sex is like exhibit A of a disordered, broken creation. Ish is having sexual relations with Ish. Isha is having sexual relations with another. Isha, this is God's good heart for the world gone wrong. Same-sex sex, now hear me, not gay people, it's the act of sex. So same-sex sex, not gay people, is a fundamental rejection of the creator's good design. The language is strong, and I don't want to kind of water it down here. Verse 27 says this, inflamed with lust for one another. Did you catch that? Inflamed with lust for one another. Some argue, and I'll say more about this in a moment, that in this passage, Paul is condemning older men who try to have sex with with younger boys. This is called pederasty, right? But like, you know, in Roman bathhouses or something like that, or, or prostitution. But this is not the case here. Notice it is a mutual lust for one another, verse 27. The lust is mutual. Bernadette Bruton, who um, is a secular lesbian scholar, she says the following about Paul. She says, I see Paul as condemning all forms of homoeroticism as the unnatural acts of people who had turned away from God. It's interesting when Christians read scripture and they find that you can affirm gay marriage, but I find it interesting that a lesbian secular scholar of antiquity would say the opposite. Um, So I want to summarize this so far. Leviticus gives us a black and white prohibition on same-sex sex, and Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 affirms it. Genesis gives us a vision for Ish and Isha, and Paul in Romans 1 affirms it and describes a broken creation. The Bible is a unified whole on this issue. The Bible is a unified whole when it comes to God's moral vision for his people and his love for creation. So I want to ask a couple more questions about the text. First of all, these are really important questions to address. Is Jesus silent about homosexuality? Is Jesus silent about it? Well, yes and no. So yes, because Jesus doesn't mention the word, right, at all in any of his teachings. And so this is something we need to wrestle with. So the argument goes that, well, if Jesus doesn't mention it, he must not have thought this was a very big deal. So I want to offer a couple thoughts on this. First, there are actually many things that Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't talk about bestiality, incest, pedophilia, abortion, euthanasia, etc. There's a lot he doesn't talk about. But this doesn't mean that we're led to believe that he doesn't care about these things. Secondly, his silence on the issue is far from him giving approval of something and could actually be quite the opposite. Why would Jesus have to teach or explain something that was so clear from the Old Testament moral law? Why would he have to articulate his view on something that wasn't up for debate? Jesus, just remember, like when you watch Jesus teach, he takes time, so much time, to articulate the right understanding of the Sabbath. When you look at his followers, the apostles, they take so much time to explain why Gentiles are suddenly allowed into the church without needing to be circumcised. These are like big debates in the early church because they look like such a change from God's moral law or God's law. They spend chapters and chapters talking about it. Had there been a change in the law, wouldn't Jesus have carefully walked his people through that? If anything, Jesus, as I mentioned earlier, elevates the purity bar in the Sermon on the Mount. And he affirms God's heart for marriage between one man and one woman in Genesis 2. So I just want to say this. The silence of Jesus on the issue doesn't prove anything. If anything, his silence proves his commitment to the Torah, God's moral heart for the world. So let's beware of any theology that would insert a word into Jesus' mouth. Okay, number two, 
Um, aren't same-sex prohibitions really about domination and exploitation? This is a really important question. So um, would Paul, Paul, the idea here is that Paul would have been fine with like a monogamous covenantal marriage of love between two men or two women. What he is against are these power relationships of like abuse, uh, prostitution, as we mentioned earlier, some kind of exploitation. The interesting thing here is that the Greek word that Paul uses is arsenokoitai, as we mentioned, and it simply means a male who lies with a male. Malakoi arsenokoitai, a male who lies with a male. The age of a person, the reason, the rationale, the deep orientation, uh, the excuse, whatever it is, it doesn't matter. If, if Paul wanted to talk about relationships based on exploitation, he had other words in Greek that he could have used. He had a whole arsenal of other words he could have used to describe what he was talking about. And these words were used in the ancient world. Here's some words. Pederastia is a Greek word that means love of boys. Pederastia. Or erastes, which is an adult man who courted a young boy. Or eromenos, which is an adolescent boy. Why doesn't Paul use those Greek words if he was talking about domination or exploitation? Well, Paul isn't just focused on those. Those are included, but Paul's words here are very general. It's simply a male who sleeps with a male. Paul is affirming God's opposition to any male lying with any male. So I want you to listen to Preston Sprinkle as he quotes his quote here. He says, go back and carefully read the prohibitions. Do they mention masters or slaves or prostitutes or rape or older men having sex with teenage boys? The language of Leviticus simply says that men, not just masters or older men or victors of war, shouldn't have sex with other men, not just slaves or younger boys or war victims. There's nothing in the text or around the text that limits the prohibition to acts of exploitation. So, to conclude our section here on what the Bible says, I want you to listen to uh, Richard Hayes, a well-respected theologian, um, and his book, The Moral Vision of the New Testament. He says this, the New Testament offers no loopholes or exception clauses that might allow for the acceptance of homosexual practices under some circumstances. Despite the effort of some recent interpreters to explain away the evidence, the New Testament remains unambiguous and univocal in its condemnation of homosexual conduct. <sighs> Often there are hard teachings in scripture, and Jesus dealt with this. There was a moment where he, he was preaching uh, something really hard for his listeners to hear. And uh, I won't focus on that topic. It's in John 6, you can read about it. But on hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching, who can accept it? From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the 12. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We've come to believe and to know that you're the Holy One of God. There comes a time in an apprentice of Jesus' life where it feels like the teachings of Jesus or the teachings of the scriptures are really hard. What do we do? Do we walk away? Or do we trust the one whose words fill us with life? Well, I want to introduce my friend, John Mayer, uh, who has found that the words of Jesus have filled him with life. Can you welcome John to the stage? I'm excited that John gets to share his story here. And uh, John, thank you for, for being willing to share your story. Um, you've been attracted to the same gender. Um, since as far back as you can remember. And, uh, and so what has uh, that journey looked like, especially as it relates to faith? Yeah. So for me, I grew up in, a uh, grew up in the church, grew up in a Christian family, um, grew up in Ontario. And uh, for me, church and faith were part of my life. I kind of grew up with that. And I was really caught off guard when I started feeling attractions to other guys. It was probably in about grade five, six is when I first really remember feeling that attraction, and, and I didn't know what to do with it. Um, 
growing up in a conservative church where this just wasn't talked about or anything I heard was condemning. There wasn't really a lot of dialogue that happened around this. And so I didn't feel like I had a safe place to share anything that I was going through or, or anything like that. I, I felt I had to keep this to myself and just try and figure it out. Um, so what I did was I dug into the Bible and I really tried to understand what God was saying uh, related to all of this and understand what his heart was. And so I read a lot of the passages that Matthew just shared and talked about and just trying to dig in and understand, okay, well, God, what does this look like in my life? Um, I believe in you and how do I, how do I make this fit? Um, because I just don't know what to do with these attractions and I don't know who to talk to. What it ended up becoming for me was really trying to please God um, as much as I could by becoming kind of the model youth group student and doing everything I could to please God and, and really trying to earn my salvation uh, in all reality, trying to just please God, to, uh, hoping that by doing enough things that I would be accepted and that I would be um, saved by the things that I did. And through all of that, I, I re remember just spending a lot of time in prayer trying to plead with God to change me, to fix me, because um, I didn't know what to do, and I, I, I felt that, God, why don't you just change me? Why don't you just take this away? And I spent a lot of time wrestling, trying to figure this out, trying to understand what was going on and, and how, to, how to move forward, and just seeking God throughout all this. Um, that led to a secret addiction to pornography. By the time I was in grade nine, I had, you know, that kind of became a bit of an outlet for me in some ways. I, I didn't have anyone to talk to, and so in order to relieve the stress of the situation, I, I encountered pornography. And, and while I didn't want to be looking at pornography, I really felt, you know, a lot like Paul when he talks about his thorn in the flesh and just that whole I do the things that I don't want to do, and I don't do the things that I want to do, and just trying to make sense of it, um, that really resonated with me, a lot of what Paul said in around that, and just trying to understand, I don't want to do this, I want to follow God, but I don't know how to make sense of all that's going on uh, internally. Um, by the time I was in grade 12, uh, I ended up opening up to my parents and just saying to them, hey, here's what I'm going through, I'm not sure um, what to do with this, and they had a whole pile of questions. This was, you know, kind of the late 90s, and again, the church still wasn't really talking about this, and there wasn't a lot out there that people uh, were sharing that, that we knew about. And so f they had just so many questions for me, and I didn't know how to answer them. I didn't know how to deal with all these questions. So I just shut down, and I said, okay, everything's fine. You know, a couple days later, just passing phase, everything's good, I'm, I'm, I'm normal again, everything's good. Um, but again, I just still struggling internally trying to understand what was going on. And then when I went to university, uh, I really felt like I was at a crossroads. I went to a Christian, or went to a secular university, and I was about three, four hours away from my parents. Um, no one that I knew in my high school was going to this university. And I remember the first night in dorm just kind of thinking, okay, I have a choice here, and I don't know which way I'm going to go. I can, act, I can start to live with the attractions that I'm feeling and, and see what it's like to embrace that, uh, or I can continue to hold to what I feel like the Bible is saying. And, and I really didn't know which way I was going to go. I, uh, I, I struggled to understand what to do. Uh, but God had his hand on me, and I really feel that he was working in my life. And within a couple days of orientation week, I ran into a couple people who I'd worked with at camp uh, for a couple summers. And they were part of the Christian Fellowship Group on campus, and so I got involved with that and, and really feel that that was God saying, I've got you, I, I still have a plan for you, and I want to hold on to you. Um, and so, you know, I ended up going to the Christian Fellowship Group, but still wrestling internally, just not knowing what to do. And by the time I hit my second year, I kind of hit a low, and I just kind of felt, okay, <laughs> I don't know what to do anymore. I need to talk to somebody. And so I found the, my campus pastor and at the church I was going to and just said to him, here's what I'm dealing with. I, what do I do? And he was open and just, you know, accepting of me as a person and just willing to walk with me through this. And it was the first time that I really felt a bit of a weight lifted off me in the sense that someone was willing to help me navigate what I was facing and wrestle with, this, wrestle with me through this so that I could try to live 
in a way that pleased God and understood what was going on internally. All this happened around um, the height of the ex-gay movement, which was really all about trying to find change, that change is possible, change is something that you should strive for and that God fixes people and if you pray hard and all this sort of stuff that, that change will happen. And so that's, you know, that's what I was reading. That's what I was hearing. And so I just continued my pleading with God, you know, <laughs> take this away, fix, fix me, um, so to speak, and just trying to understand that. But continued to not see change in my attractions. But in all this, I kind of felt God saying, I want you to be open with what's happened in your life. I want you to share your story. And so shortly after that, I, you know, my last year of university, I ended up sharing with the Christian Fellowship Group my testimony, my, my story. Uh, I shared that with them. And then a couple years later, I, went, I came out here to BC to go to seminary at Axe Seminary. And um, I resolved to be open with my story right from the start. I still didn't know how to make heads and tails with some of this stuff, but um, the first, one of the first assignments I had was involved sharing my story, and so I, I laid it all out there, and the professor who uh, that assignment was for, he, you know, he, he, he was open to walking with me and just talking about things and became a good friend, and through my seminary experience, I, I spent every single opportunity I could to dig into what the Bible says about sexuality. Um, I really tailored every paper I could to understanding this and trying to dig into all these passages and just understand the Greek and the Hebrew and all these sorts of things. Um, so for me, that, that became an opportunity to really try to start understanding this. But around that same time, too, is when um, the X-Game movement started to have a bit of a shift there became a bit of a change in the view on some stuff. And so a study that was done by Mark Yarhouse found that about a third of people who went through what he said were considered religiously mediated uh, therapy to change their orientation, about a third of them found that they were able to change their orientation. About a third found that they maybe had some change, but nothing significant. Uh, and about a third had no change, that they just didn't feel it did anything for them. And around that time too, like it's just the, the shift that started to happen was that it's not, a, it's not just about change. It's not saying that God can't change somebody, but if we're making this the goal and the ideal, then it can cause problems. And not everybody, not, God doesn't always give us the answers that we want to things that he allows to happen in our lives. And so the goal became holiness about finding identity in Jesus, finding identity in Christ. And that really changed my perspective on a lot of things and allowed me a lot more freedom when I finally realized, okay, I have to stop focusing on this issue because it's just reinforcing the problem, so to speak, um, and finding my identity in Jesus and allowing that to be what drives my life. Um, and around that time, too, I just kind of felt like God, uh, you know, I, while I grew up feeling like I wanted to get married and have kids, and then when this uh, attraction to the same gender happened. Didn't know what that was going to look like. Uh, but around this time, I just kind of, okay, God, I, I guess my lot in life is to be single. I guess I'm going to be single uh, my whole life and just trying to understand what that would look like for me. But realized that focusing even on my studies on the issue of homosexuality or same gender attraction specifically it was also difficult. We need to look at the broader conversation of sexuality. That you know, sometimes the church hasn't gotten things right when it comes to sexuality in general, and that we need to really understand sexuality as God designed it. Um, and so that became you know a bit of a change in my focus. But despite all that I read, despite all that I um, tried to understand, and I read both sides of the argument. I tried to understand the the pro-gay stance as well as the um, traditional view uh, from the Bible. Despite all the studying and research I did, I never felt God saying, this is a path that's acceptable for you. I never felt him saying, you can embrace your attraction for other guys. That just never seemed like a, a fit with what God wanted for me. Sorry. <laughs> so, John, the interesting thing is that you're married to a woman. And you have two children. Can you tell us how that happened? Yeah. Yeah. For sure. So, yeah, again, as I said, I, I felt like I was going to be single, and I didn't know what that was going to look like in my life. Um, you know, I just assumed I was going to be single. So, 
like probably some other guys, I didn't realize that uh, Renee, who's now my wife, was interested in me, and it was really her last-ditched effort to show that she was interested that I finally clued into, uh, probably mostly because I wasn't looking for a relationship, and, and it, so I clued in that she was interested in me, and so we started dating, started trying to figure out what this would look like, and um, it was the first dating relationship I'd been in. I was 28 years old, and it's the first time I'd dated anybody. So I you know, started asking others, you know, how do I do this? Like, what does this look like? And um, anyway, we started dating. And, and as we got more serious in our relationship and looking towards marriage, a lot of real questions started coming up. Okay, what's this going to look like? Is, are we going to be able to make this work? Um, you know, she had real questions like, are you going to leave me for another guy down the road? Like, what happens if you, you just feel like that's, gonna, you know, that, that's the better option for you or something? And as I started re really trying to dig into this and we started to understand, just realizing that in a lot of ways it's not different than any other marriage relationship. Anyone who gets married, from a Christian perspective, you want to save your, you hold yourself for your wife, that you, you know, any other attraction, so for most guys it's an attraction to maybe another woman, that you have to deal with that so that you stay faithful to your wife, and I have to do the same thing. It just happens to be that my attractions are for other guys rather than other girls. So a lot of things were no different than any other marriage when it came down to it. And the other thing that I had, been, had done some reading and research on was just taking a look at what does the Bible say about some of this stuff. And, you know, we get the euphemism to know in the biblical sense uh, as a euphemism for sex from the Bible because it, in Genesis... It says, Adam knew Eve, and they had their son. Well, I started looking at that and, and realizing that that word is so rich in the Hebrew, that there's so much more to it than just physical attraction, that there's emotional, um, spiritual, there's so many different levels to attraction. And in any relationship, if, if it's based on physical attraction, it's doomed to fail. Because we go through seasons in life where physical attraction is just not there, whether it's aging or circumstances of life that have just impacted a person, physical attraction isn't always there. And we have to, you know, we, we choose to love somebody, not strictly based on feelings. Um, and so we, you know, we had to wrestle through that and just realize that, okay, we're going to have the same struggles, same, or we're going to have the same issues, challenges in marriage that anybody else has. Marriage isn't a perfect thing that everybody, um, you know, goes along swimmingly in. Uh, there are issues, there are challenges that come up. Ours might be a little different than typical marriage, but it's no different in a lot of ways. But in, in saying all this too, I, I don't want to point to this as an ideal because I don't think that getting married is a solution. It's, my, my attractions haven't changed because I got married. That, that's not a fix-all uh, when it comes to this conversation. Singleness is just as valid as option like we talked about last week as marriage, and we have to find what God's desire and, and intent for us is in, in our um, relationships. And so, yeah, that's kind of how we have that again. Thank you, John. And a final question. Like, as you think about our church, like, what's, what's a word of encouragement you'd love to leave with us as a church? Yeah, I think one of the big things is being open to talking about sexuality. I'm grateful for this series, for this opportunity to talk about sexuality in its entirety, not just looking at one specific issue. Um, you know, I grew up in a church where we didn't talk about sexuality. We, it just wasn't a topic, and anything that was said was negative. Having an open conversation to say, this is the ideal, this is what God desires in, in human relationships, uh, is freeing and liberating, and, and it allows openness for people to have the conversation, that no matter what you're struggling with, facing, want to have a loving conversation and talk about things. Um, and so being open to have those conversations. Watching the language that we use, like Matthew said, you know, we, we have to be careful with the language that we use, um, partially because language can be so powerful to build walls. And if we are not careful with the words that we use, it can easily put up a wall and make it hard to have a conversation with somebody. Mm -hmm. If we're open to using language that we maybe aren't as comfortable with, it can allow that dialogue to happen. Um, particularly when a person's worldview is different than ours. It, having a conversation with somebody who has a Christian worldview is a lot different than someone who doesn't have a Christian worldview. We can't really impose our Christian moral views on somebody who doesn't share our worldview. 
we have to bring them to Christ. We have to bring them into a relationship with Jesus so that they see his worldview, see that worldview and see that um, moral vision before we can really have these conversations about sexuality or anything else. Um, you know, we need to be willing to have, willing to bring them to Christ first. Um, and the, the other thing is just embracing a positive view of gay marriage and, and those sorts of things can be hurtful to people like me um, because I feel God's asking me to be faithful to this calling in my life where I hold to the teaching that Jesus has and, and I believe the Bible says related to sexuality. Um, and when people change their view, it can be hurtful because all of a sudden it's, well, yeah, you could have gotten married to a guy. You could have gone down that road. That would, that would have been fine. But I'm married, and I, you know, I, I, and I don't feel that God's ask, allowing me to do that, that he's, he's asked me to be faithful in this. And so it can really hurt when people change their views. Above all, I'd say that we need to love people, that we have to hold grace and truth in tension. Grace without truth is damaging and hurtful. And truth without grace is damaging and hurtful. It's a tension, and we have to hold that so that we can love people well, regardless of, of what it is that they're struggling with or dealing with in their life. John, thank you. Can we thank John for sharing? If you want to hear more from John and you're a parent uh, of children here, John has agreed to host a parent Q&A session on Sunday, February 23rd. So uh, you can chat with uh, Pastor Joy or Pastor Susie, hear more about that. Let's stand together as we uh, end our time with, it, with a song. As we stand, I want to remind us of the end of uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. After a series of... Uh, sin, when we read in 1 Corinthians 6, we read this, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Look at the end, look, look right there, I've, I've bolded it right there, but you, North Langley, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. He has poured out his love upon us as his people. Look to the cross and once again see his arms outstretched, arms of welcome to his children. Sometimes it's a yes, sometimes it's a no, but it's all love. It's all love from a Father that loves you deeply, from Jesus the Son who is pierced for your sins and from the Spirit who wants to pour the love of God into your life. This is love so amazing, love so divine that it demands my soul and my life and my all. Amen.